First Samuel chapter 16, we have started a new chapter tonight. First Samuel chapter 16, we're going to pick up at verse 1. As you get settled, we're going to ask the Lord for his blessing now. And dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your presence here among us. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for being here. We can't do anything without your help. We ask that as we open the scriptures, you would open the eyes of our understanding so that we might know your word, hear your voice, and put it into practice and be blessed and be a blessing to others. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Sometimes it's difficult to tell the difference between a true believer and a fake one or we shall call them professing believers, someone who claims to believe, looks like a believer, talks like a believer, but in reality is not. And that's an unfortunate reality, whether it's in the Old Testament, where we are this evening, or the New Testament. Now, Jesus highlights this truth uh, with this parable of the wheat and the weeds. He says, let me compare the kingdom of God um, to a farmer who sows good seed, good wheat, in his field. When the stalks come up, however, lo and behold, growing side by side, look alike poisonous weeds that look like the wheat, but are in fact not. They turn out to be sown uh, there by the farmer's enemy. Now, the farmer cautions the hired hands who want to pull up those poisonous plants, not to do so. He says, because they look so much like the wheat at times, uh, you may pull up the wrong plants. And so he says, just let them grow. And at the end, it will become apparent to everybody which plant is what. And at harvest time, the two can be distinguished. Now, here's a picture of what he's talking about. Uh, wheat and the wheat weed is called darnel, and the one apparently on the left is the wheat, and the one on the right is what is called false wheat or darnel. Let me give you a definition. We've been here before, but it's worth repeating. Darnel usually grows in the same production zones as wheat and is considered a weed. The similarity between the two plants is so extensive that in some regions it's called false wheat. It bears a very close resemblance to wheat until the ear appears. Then you can tell the difference. The darnel uh, carries a fungus that spreads into the wheat fields and diseases the wheat plants. The French word for darnel expresses the weed's characteristic of making one feel poisoned with drunkenness and can cause death. And so it's truly, you can leave this on just for a second here more as I introduce our topic and then turn on the lights, I guess that would be a good thing. Uh, the spiritual application for tonight would be King Saul is on the right. He is the false wheat. He has looked like a believer. He has prophesied in the name of the Lord. He has won battles for God. He has offered sacrifices to the Lord. He has close associates who are spiritual people. It's confusing because he looks like a believer. But now we are finding as the plant grows, the continual rebellion, his murderous insecurities, and his poisonous unbelief are really revealing King Saul's true nature. So because of this, the Lord has promised to remove him, and really, last chapter has given him his pink slip as the king of Israel, and through the prophet Samuel, as we've seen last week, it was the last straw, no pun intended there, until I realized it was one, and now it is intended. So chapter 15, last time. Uh, we saw that King Saul kept the plunder of the Amalekites. He was told three times by the Lord, this is a punitive mission. You're not to take any plunder. And yet he did. And then he said, this is a very wicked man, King Agag, and I want him executed. 
and for some reason, King Saul decided to pardon him. And that was the last straw. And then we, we read last time as Samuel turned to leave after Samuel told him, look, you're fired. The Lord just is done with you. You know, you can no longer be king. He's rejected you because you've rejected him. And it says Saul caught hold of the hem of his robe and it tore. Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors, someone better than you. We already heard this two chapters before, but the Lord was working with Saul. He wanted to give him second and third chances, but Saul just couldn't do it. And so we heard back then, now your kingdom will not endure, Saul. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. So he said, listen, I got somebody better, somebody who's after my own heart, and that would be King David. He's the real deal. He's the wheat. King Saul is the weed. All right, thanks for that picture. And now on to the story. As I said, King Saul has just been fired and uh, Samuel's gone his way with a little object lesson for leaving a little piece of his own robe with King Saul. So verse 1, chapter 16. By the way, we're only going to get down to uh, verse 13. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul since I've rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, how can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate of all his boys. There's one that the Lord had chosen. Now, verse 4, Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. All right, let's pause there. Roman numeral number one, a time for everything under heaven. Now, Ecclesiastes chapter three has a few lists of things that uh, are come with seasons of life, a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance. So there's a time to mourn and there's a time to move forward. So right up from the start here, we see apparently Samuel has overstayed his visit in the valley of grief and sadness. Now, first of all, we see that Samuel has a tender heart, and, and any believer should have a tender, soft heart. Not a cynical heart, not a hard heart, not somebody who can't sympathize with somebody else's tragedy or pain. So uh, Samuel loved this guy, Saul, even though he just kept making loser choices in life. He wanted Saul to get it in a, in a good way there. Samuel's invested in Saul's life. He prayed for him for years, and he's watching this guy come apart, and he's mourning. The word there is as if somebody has died it's like watching a train wreck in slow motion. And last uh, chapter, we found out that God was grieved. He said, you know what? This whole thing with him, just this upsetting, I wish it never happened. I, I regret making him king. A terrible thing to hear from God saying, it pains my heart in the Hebrew. And on, so on top of Samuel's tender heart for this guy that he invested in, he, he feels what God feels. He, he grieves. He's not happy about this tragedy. He's mourning. But the lesson here with God's rebuke 
in his mourning that there's something bigger than our individual setbacks, and it's called the kingdom of God. God's kingdom moves forward. One commentator said this, God never allows his work to die with the death or failure of one man. It's God's work and way beyond any man. Samuel's paralyzed by Saul's downfall, but God is not. God is ready to move forward, but Samuel is not. And so you hear a rebuke. You hear him saying, you know, how long are you going to mourn for? We need to keep moving. Now, by way of a broader spiritual application that I feel very strongly about delivering to you and to me tonight, our blessings and our setbacks, our gains and our losses are secondary to the advancement of the kingdom of God. Now, Paul the Apostle, inspired by the Holy Spirit, will say something that will seem very stark and harsh to us. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 29, along these lines. He says, what I mean, brothers, is time is short. For now, from now on, those who have wives should live as if they had none. This is the Bible. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of this world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. And so here's what he's saying. He's saying the things in our lives, good and bad, are secondary. There's a priority. It's not about our marriage here. It is not about your husband and wife. It's about Jesus Christ who's coming back. And we can make our marriage a distraction. He says, and so it's not about your happiness or lack thereof. And he says, and it's not about your setback, about mourning and tragic things that happen. Because the clock, I'm quoting Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, the clock is ticking. God's kingdom is going, and you're going to be distracted by all these little things. Nothing wrong with the things. He who finds a wife finds a good thing. It's a blessing, and it's a blessing to be happy. But it's not about your happiness. It's not about your marriage. It's not about your career. It's not about your ups and downs. It's about the kingdom of God. You can't be distracted by these things. Now, I love what one commentator said. The sinful human heart, if not carefully guarded, will use a painful setback to disengage from relationship with God, feeling entitled to go AWOL for a while. The Lord allows us time to cry our tears and work through things and get our bearings, but then he says it's time to move forward. So let's say a marriage dissolves, or you've lost a loved one, or your parents abused you, or you've been victimized, or the church split, or the pastor fell. I have heard many times in 30 years, oh, well, I haven't been to church for years. Why is that? Oh, a nasty church split, and the pastor fell. Oh, and so it was okay for you to decide that you're not going to go to church for five years. But you told him, you know what? I, because of what you put me through, I'm checking out here. AWOL means um, absent without official leave. You see, I call the shots here, and that was overwhelming. It's too much, and I'm going to take a little break now. Now, I'm stuck, and, and Saul has been demoted. And Saul is my boy. And the Lord says, <clears throat> excuse me, it's been enough time. You've cried your tears. I've cried my own as well. Now, the kingdom of God is moving. Would you like to come? Or do you want to stay put and cry some more tears? People, please get on board. Or he'll leave you behind while you're sitting there complaining and whining about your victimization. He says, I grieve with you. We weep with you. We grieve with those who grieve. We cry with those who cry. We're sympathetic. But in time, 
We must go forward because it's not about us. It's about a world lost in need, about a Savior who's coming, and about a God who rules and reigns. Surely Satan wanted Samuel to remain trapped in mourning over the tragedies of the past. He wanted Samuel stuck there, one writer, unable to move with the Lord. But there are times when God tells us simply to move on. This is why God told Moses at the shores of the Red Sea, why are you still on your knees crying out to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward. Exodus chapter 14, verse 15. And so Samuel does just that. The Lord tells him, come on, kid, get a move on. So he does. He tells him to take out a hollowed out cow's horn, which was used as a container, fill it with anointing oil. You'll remember from Exodus chapter 29 that there was a special recipe for a fragrant oil to use in ceremonies to set God's men apart for service. And all in one verse, God gives Samuel a name and an address, a mission, and reveals his intention. I've got my king. The people had their choice. The People's Choice Award went to King Saul, and everybody applauded. But he said, you know what? I've got a king. I've got my king, and it's one of Jesse's boys. Go and make him king instead of Saul. Now, notice Samuel's terrified reaction in verse 2. Are you kidding me, Lord? Saul will catch wind of that and certainly kill me. Now, does that sound like a believer to you? Does it sound like somebody who, when the Lord says, listen, buddy, you're done. Last chance, finished. Step down. And he says, "Uh uh-uh. And God says, "Uh, you need to make room for another king. And he says, make me. And God says, okay. And that's what we're going to see here. But you know what? He wants to keep his job. God has already told him twice in our hearing, in the text, that God clearly showed him. And he's, a, he's kind of admitted it, too. And he says, you know, let him do as he sees fit, but he's not going anywhere. In fact, it is apparent to Samuel that if he catches wind of Samuel doing anything to come against his kingdom, he'll be murdered. You see, and so we kind of get the feeling of what this guy is all about. Verses two and three, he says, listen, uh, you know, he's going to this is a small area. He's going to find out. He's going to want to know where are you going and all of that. And he says, the Lord says, here's how you describe your mission to anyone who asks you. He says, you tell them what you're doing without giving them too many details. That's called being wise as a servant and harmless as a dove. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 16. It is not lying. It's just telling them a vague generality of what's going on. Being wise as a servant and harmless as a dove, it means being smart and morally upright at the same time. Shrewd, but morally clean. Clever without deception. So he says, here's your script, kid. You're so nervous. You say, I'm going to Bethlehem for a church service. This heifer is the offering and for the barbecue afterwards. Now, that's exactly, by the way, a female, uh, female livestock were able to be used for fellowship offerings and peace offerings, never for sin offerings. And so he's saying I, the road from where Samuel lives in Ramah to go to Bethlehem runs straight through Gebeah, which is where... King Saul lives. And so he's going to go through. Now, Samuel's a celebrity. So he's going to go through King Saul's town on his way to get to Bethlehem. Everybody knows who he is. And King Saul's a little bit controlling. And he's going to ask, where are you going and why? So to avoid problems, he says, kid, keep it vague. The details serve no purpose. And it's none of their business. So Jesse's... um, a bit of a celebrity too, uh, grandson of Ruth and Boaz from Ruth chapter four. That will make David great grandson 
of Ruth the Moabitess, and according to Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 3, that would make David the grandfather times great 28 greats of the Son of God, God coming through a human womb related, that womb, blood-related to David there in Matthew 1. In Micah chapter 5 and verse 2 in the Old Testament, it says that the Lord would be born in Bethlehem, the house of bread. In John chapter 6, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of heaven. And then the bread of life, as I've mentioned to you, especially at Christmas time, is laid in the manger, a word that means feeder. And so the bread of life, the bread of heaven, gets laid in the manger in Bethlehem, the house of bread. <laughs> and then we partake of that bread, which Jesus says that is my body, the symbol of the cross and what he did on there. So here we have David now as the progenitor, humanly speaking, of the Christ, son of God, son of man, son of David, son of God. It's just a marvelous mystery that he could be related to us, God, who, who spoke the world into being. And he'll tell David this through Nathan the prophet. He'll say in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 13 and 14, he'll say, from your own body, the Messiah who will reign eternally will come from you, your body. He may have your eyes. He may look like you. I mean, it'll be 28 generations, but there you have it. So Samuel's on a fairly significant mission to Bethlehem. Uh, verse 4, he arrives there, and the elders are shaken. In the Hebrew, it says they're quaking with fear. Why are they quaking? Well, they know that there's estrangement between Samuel and the madman Saul. And not to mention, do you remember last chapter, they were all present when Samuel, filled with the Holy Spirit, said, bring Agag, King Agag, to me. And he, Samuel, old man prophet, executed him before the Lord, pleasing unto the Lord. Well, that image of him doing that is fresh in their minds. And here he comes to Bethlehem. And they say, hey, are you on a peaceful mission or what? And he says, listen, uh, he tells the elders of the town, Number one, sanctify yourselves. Now that's cue for we're going to have a, we're going to have church. Uh, sanctify meant that they washed, they bathed, and they changed their clothes, and that's how they had a church celebration. Uh, we see that in Exodus 19. If you're taking notes, and he made sure he said, and by the way, Jesse's boys are invited, and no one knows why, except, of course, Samuel and the Lord. Verse 6 through 11a now. So when um, they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab. So the boys, Jesse's, Jesse and his seven boys arrive. Samuel sees Eliab and thinks, surely Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by. But Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? Oh, there is still the youngest, Jesse answered. But he, he's out tending the sheep. All right. Number two. Oh, yeah, I forgot. <laughs> That's what I would call this point. An important little oversight. The, the human progenitor of the Lord Jesus Christ doesn't make the guest list. All right. Now, you may be asking, why is the Lord drawing this whole thing out 
in a dramatic way. I mean, he could just say, why don't you just go to the house? There's a kid in the field. Go get the kid in the field. That's the one. But he's got several lessons to teach us through this little process. And I personally love it. I just, I love drama. And that's, here it is. And so first notice, this is what I first noticed. Samuel's old and wise. He's godly. He's a Bible hero. All right, he's at the end of his life, but he, like all of us, never stops growing or learning or making bad calls. And one, in one way, that's encouraging, and in, in another way, it's disheartening, isn't it? I mean, here he is, he's still making a bad call, and the Lord has to call this guy a, a Bible hero at the end of his life, spiritually mature. <laughs> a place where we would hope one day to be by the grace of God, and he's still saying, man, that was a really dumb move. So verse 6, Samuel is wowed by number one son Eliab's appearance, and he's in danger of making a very big mistake. You would think he would have learned with uh, Mr. Hollywood that it wasn't all about like, wow, there he is again, Saul number two. You know, honestly, that is what could have happened there. And now I want you to see as part of one of the lessons why God lets this drama unfold as he does is, is that the Lord is eavesdropping on Samuel's private thoughts. You will look in your text and you will see Samuel saw Eliab and thought to himself. He's thinking to himself and God is like listening on the wall of his heart there. He just hears everything. Psalm 94, 11, the Lord knows the thoughts of man. Psalm 44, verse 21, God knows the secrets of the heart. In Luke 5 and verse 22, several occasions, this is only one of them, Jesus, quote, knew what they were thinking and asked, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Great quote. Sometimes we think we're safe to imagine or to conclude or to think or to say anything we want to as long as we do it inwardly to ourselves to let our private thoughts do their private thing in the privacy of our own private souls. But saved or not, God knows all and demands dominion in the private sector as well as the public domain. Now, the Lord, through the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 5, we take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. We take every thought captive and make it obey Christ. We're not just free reign thoughts. Oh, you're free. Nobody heard that. You're free. Just do whatever you want. You see something, run with it. He will judge that. You, I don't need to remind you when he said, you, you know, you talk about committing adultery. Come on, you're committing adultery in your heart when you just lust away uncontrollably like that. Our inner selves are subject to examination by the Holy Spirit and will count on the day of judgment. Well, it's just thoughts. Now, listen, you can't control every thought that goes through your head. And I've said this many times, and I stole it from somebody else, and I love it. You cannot stop the bird from flying overhead, but you can stop it from making its nest there. And that is what God expects. Now, Proverbs 23 and 7 in King James. As a man thinks, so is he. That's why it's so important, because uh, as one theologian, Francis Schaefer said, the inner thought life determines the outward action. Now, we used to sing a little song with our kids and popular Sunday school song. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Careful, little eyes, what you see. For there's a father up above looking down in love. So be careful, little eyes, what you see. And then it goes, of course, to be careful, little ears, what you hear. 
And then it goes to, oh, be careful, little hands, what you do. And then it goes to, oh, be careful, little feet, where you go. And then it finishes up with, be careful, little mouth, what you say. A father up above, looking down in love, be careful. But it leaves out the most important one, the one that is the source for all the others. Be careful, little heart, what you think. Be careful, little heart, what you think. For from the overflow of your heart, the lips speak and the hands move and the feet go. Because first it was conceived in the heart and you nurtured it. You let it go and now it prompts you and it is the impetus for your sin and your disobedience. Be careful, little heart, what you think. And I am certainly not the only one the Holy Spirit is set up like a control panel in. And every time there's a, just an out-of-line thought, I hear about it. I hear about it. I cannot be the only person, the only Christian in the world that gets a little text from the Lord, excuse me? I'm like, oh, yeah, you're in here too. I forgot. It's important. And so, moving on. Now, of course, there's nothing inherently wrong with outward attractiveness. It just has nothing to do with character by which God evaluates us. Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Proverbs chapter 31 and verse 30. So the Lord has to remind Samuel of this thing as the seven sons come into view one by one and Samuel's ready to crown son number one based on looks alone. Here's verse seven paraphrased. Samuel, stop being so impressed with outward attractiveness. He's tall and good looking, but he's failed my test. He doesn't have what I'm looking for and where I start my search is on the inside. I look at a person's heart, not like you humans who always look first to the outside. So Eliab, firstborn boy, apparently tall, good-looking, Mr. Wonderful, looks like a king, but he doesn't have the heart like a king, according to the Lord. So the Lord whispers to Samuel, hey, it, it's hard to make a judgment call. You're looking around at the seven sons. What am I looking for? Well, he looks like a king. I'm going to pick him. And the Lord says, Samuel, look to me. I'll, t I'll help you figure it out. It's complicated. You can't tell from looking at the outside anything. You really can't. And so, uh, you know, I like to call the young people out. I know there's a lot of you here. You're single. You're hoping to be married. You know, you've heard this before. Listen. Character, spirit qualities, maturity, self-control, a prayer life, a work ethic. How do they handle stress? Their background, their personalities, their temperament, especially under pressure. These are the things that matter. Physical attraction is important. It plays a part. The way God made us. That's important. We're not denying that. But he says, remember what's really important. Faith in God, Christian maturity, character qualities. Now, if you can get cute and character, <laughs> like I got in my wife, that's not bad, like me. <laughs> Like I got in Barb, then go for it. All right. Verse 8, moving on. Woo. Now, <laughs> the Holy Spirit breaks sweat. The Holy Spirit breaks Samuel's enamored gaze that's locked on this Mr. Hollywood, Eliab. And the Holy Spirit goes, dude, listen, stop. This is crazy. And uh, he has Jesse start calling the roll. So Abinadab struts by, and he says, nope, 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 
And then Shama comes up and he goes, no way, King Shama, are you kidding me? No, sorry. <laughs> he doesn't say that, but yeah. So they run through all seven sons and Samuel's like, no, 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 no. You got one more? Oh, it must be no. All of them know. So he says, do you have any sons? Perhaps you left one in the chariot uh, or the car, you know, or he's home. Or or did you adopt any out when they were babies? Because none of these boys. So let's finish up 11 through 13 and we'll be done. So Samuel asked Jesse, is this everyone? Well, he says, there is still the youngest, Jesse says, but he's out tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him, because we're not going to sit down until he gets here. So he sent and had him brought in. He was ruddy and a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. He's the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, on the spirit of the Lord, Um, From that day on, the spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Samuel then went to Ramah, right? That's where we're going to finish up. But there's a lot to talk about here. Number three, and finally, God calls unlikely people. Now, here's what I think is going on in Dad's mind. He says, uh, this is it? Do you have any other kids, any other boys? And he's thinking, well, are you kidding me? We got, we got a kid in the field. I mean, I didn't even think enough to have him on the list. I mean, he, he plays the harp. He writes poems all day long. That's all the kid is doing, rhyming things and making up songs to the Lord. He's really, his, his head's in the clouds. And, and you know what? He's caring for sheep. That, you know, he, he's playing with slingshots out there in the back. You know, seriously? You, you want to talk to him? Yeah, yeah, there's the youngest one. So first of all, here, here's what we're going to notice. Notice how low of a regard dad has for him and all the brothers. Because you don't hear the brothers saying, hey, where's David? (laughs) Yeah. Number one, they don't mention him by name, the youngest. Number two, he wasn't even invited to the service. He said, bring all your boys. Here are all my boys. Wow. Let me say progenitor means the father Progenitor of the Son of God. Not on the list, not in the thinking. The most famous human being, when you see him in heaven, he's got a big role to play. Not on anybody's radar. And he wouldn't have been brought in unless Samuel insisted. Alan Redpath, great commentary on the book of 1 Samuel. Here's what he says about this. You, my friend, may not have a lot going for you according to the world's estimation, or you may not be very popular even in your family or Christian circles. Perhaps your parents had very meager love for you as David experienced. But remember that those who are rejected and overlooked by men are so very often the ones most beloved and called by God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 26. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Paul to the Corinthians saying this. Not many of you are really wise by human standards. No offense to all Christians. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. He's saying, look around you at Christians. The Lord seems to take ordinary people whose hearts are open and mostly the poor and downtrodden. And why does he do that? Because those are the folks who are hurting, who feel their need, and are open to the gospel. And the rich and the beautiful and the wealthy and the powerful don't necessarily sense their great need. And so we see that, you know, it's 
it's not the worst thing in the world to be down and out or isolated. Now, why do you think the Lord was letting this all happen to David out there as a teenager, isolated, forgotten in the fields? Let me say this as we kind of wrap up. The Lord was preparing him. God doesn't waste any time in any believer's life. And I thought about what God might be teaching him out in the fields as a teenage boy, and here are some thoughts. Number one, he's learning to serve. If Jesse's family had the funds, they would have hired a servant, a lowly servant, to go muck out the stalls. It was a job that engendered humility. Number one, humility is such an important quality in any leader, and he wants David to have humility. The Lord Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, said, you know what, I came to serve. I'll wash 30 feet if nobody else wants to. I don't have a problem with that, and you'll be very blessed if you imitate that attitude in me. I'm the Lord, but I didn't come to be served, but to serve and give my life a ransom payment, humbling myself unto death, obedient to a cross. Or crying out loud, I don't know why we think we're above our master as his disciples. Number two, David's learning some very uh, good caretaking skills. As a shepherd, he has to know the sheep individually. They would call them by name. And, and deal with them accordingly, to feed them. They are defenseless. He, he developed skill in protecting them and nurturing them and guiding them and leading them. And you cannot drive. You can drive cattle, but you cannot drive sheep. They scatter. You must lead them. David's learning. David's learning, number three, to develop a relationship with God. He's got time to think. He's outdoors. He's thinking. He's looking at the stars every night. And he says, you know, when I consider the heavens, the work of your hands, O Lord, that you did all of that, the sun, moon, and stars, that you put them into place, who am I that you would be so concerned about me? Psalm number eight. Then he's thinking, boy, Lord, you know what? The shepherding thing, it reminds me, you're my shepherd. And and if you're my shepherd, I'm going to lack no good thing. You know what? You lead me beside still waters like I'm doing. And as he's doing it, he's thinking in loneliness. People have forgotten him. He's not on anybody's radar. He's not voted in his high school. Shirley's the most influential guy in the class. No, he's not. But he's writing out of his loneliness and his anguish and his solitude. Is our coming Psalm 8 and Psalm 23 and Psalm 25 and Psalm 27 and Psalm 91 and Psalm 100. He was, he's written half of them. He's learning. He's contemplating. When you're in that quiet place, an isolated place, and you're not very busy, and you're just kind of sidetracked, what happened to me? How did I end up over here alone in this dark place? And Are you writing? Are you thinking? Are you connecting? Are you using the time? It's not waiting time. It's training time. God doesn't waste anything. He's a redeemer of everything. And wherever you find yourself at tonight, he's working. He's training. What else do I see here? I see that I would think he's developing massive trust in the Lord. It's nighttime. There are mountain lions. There are noises at night. He's 15 years old, if you do the math. 16, 15. He's got to trust the Lord. The animals come out, the sheep, bears, wolves, bandits. And I would think on top of his trust, he's learning some self-confidence and courage. courage. 
with the wild animals at night and all of that. And like I mentioned before, he's getting really good with a slingshot. And it's going to come in really handy someday. In a couple chapters, there's going to be a fee and a fi and a faux fub. And here comes Goliath and there goes everybody else. And it doesn't rhyme, but that's too bad. God doesn't waste anything in our lives. Are you keeping the sheep right now? Oh, doing what nobody else wants to do. I'm stuck in a rut in this place. Oh, poor me. I don't think there was a psalm. Well, yeah, there was. There are a few psalms, poor me. (laughs) But the, the, the song always ends with poor me, but wow. Put my eyes on the Lord. Why are you downcast, oh, my soul? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him. Psalm It's in the 20s, isn't it? Look it up. You find out. Tell me. Email me. All right. 42. That's my guess. I'm 42. I'll beat you. Well, first I turn it right side up. Is it 42? Thank you. So, just had to prove it. What? There's only one version, the NIV. Is that what you said? All right. Let's talk later. All right. Moving on. Verse 12. So in walks the 16-year-old kid. And let's, he describes him now, and then we'll close up. Number one, he says, in walks ruddy. Oh, that's a word we don't often hear, you know. I've never heard anybody say, hey, He's ruddy, you know. It means red or fair. So some commentators say, so he had red hair, but probably it means fair because most Middle Eastern men were, and the word is swarthy, which means just dark. But they considered, wow, when you were fair-complected as a Middle Eastern man, it was considered attractive. And then it says that he, in the Hebrew, he had bright eyes. It means a nice countenance or handsome. You see, there's a little bit of a difference because he is handsome and attractive. But there's a little bit of a difference in the Hebrew with how they describe King Saul. King Saul is Mr. Hollywood, and you would say a born leader, When you see David, according to the Hebrew, you would say, there's a nice-looking boy. You see, so there's not an emphasis on glamour. It's an emphasis on he's he's an attractive guy, but there's more to him than that. So inner bells and whistles go off with the Holy Spirit for uh, in Samuel's heart, and this high school sophomore or junior is pre-anointed. As king. Now, interesting, it'll take him 10 years to get the crown. And uh, commentators say, and this is a beautiful thought, he says, it takes a while to be crowned in our lives. It's a long time for most of us between when we're chosen and anointed and the time when we receive our crowns. Second Timothy chapter 4 and verse 8. In between, there's a lot of conflict and spiritual warfare God has for us. The spiritual warfare is just as much evidence of our destiny as the anointing and the crowning. So in in one way, commentators say that this is a type of Christian activity, that God comes in and calls us and crowns us. He says, you, my young daughter, my young son, are heirs to a throne. You will reign and rule with me. Upon a throne, you will judge angels, you will judge the world with me, we will reign. But not yet. It's the same idea. The 16-year-old kid's anointed king, he, he's got it. It's his destiny. He's going to get the crown, but he's going to walk it out. He's got to be tested. He's got Goliath. He's got Saul for, I don't know, 15 chapters with this madman hunting him down like, it says, like a partridge on the mountains. That's us. 
If you're a born-again believer, the flask has been broken over and the Holy Spirit is upon you and you are the future reigning king and queen, not of Narnia. But that's why, by the way, where do you think he got that idea that the prophecy that those kids have to be kings and queens of Narnia? That's a biblical idea. He didn't just throw that one in, and by the way, they're all going to sit on thrones. He got that out of the text. C.S. Lewis did. So that's my point. Look, we're in the in-between. You've got the anointing. It's going to happen. Walk it out. Be faithful. And that's all God's asking. Be faithful to your calling, not to somebody else's calling, but to the calling that you have. And if you're in the sheep pen now, could you just let God have his way? Facilitate the greatest potential in your downtime because it's not your downtime. It's a beautiful time. It's a time of preparation for great things to come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your wonderful love, your goodness, your grace, and just the, the promises that just wow us and fill us with this overwhelming sense of joy and excitement. We can scarcely take it in. But we know it to be true. The Holy Spirit testifies with our spirit that these things are true. Now, Father, we pray that even by the grace of God and your word spoken tonight, taught to our hearts, that we would be encouraged, that we take little steps in the place that you've called us tonight, where we find ourselves, and just be faithful to praise you, to think, to develop courage and faith so that we can be who we're meant to be on that day. In Jesus' name, amen.